Well, good evening. It's so they, they, I was, uh, we've been at a conference all week just outside of Rochester. We're part of uh, Elam Fellowship as a church, and, and uh, so we drove up uh, early on Tuesday and then, and then drove back on Friday, and, and uh, during one of the, the breaks when we were at the, at the hotel, I was walking back to my, back to my room, and I, and I hear somebody's voice and out, coming out of a room into the hallway that sounded familiar. I was like, that sounds like Pastor David. I was like, they're filming the video announcements right here. In Rochester, New York. So those video announcements came to you all the way. I know from Rochester. I know. It's nice. That's impressive, isn't it? It's like Pastor Jamie. He's on it. He's on it. So, hey, I'm excited to, uh, to be with you tonight to continue with our series on the good news. We've been in this since January. We're staying in it. And uh, I hope that God has been challenging your heart uh, as much as he's been challenging mine as we've been studying our way through uh, the Bible and looking at this idea of the gospel. And so, but before we do that tonight, I just I want to invite you into just, just in a moment, and then we're going to get back into the message. But tomorrow is Vanessa's birthday. And so I know, so can you just give her some love just for a minute? Just give her some love. I know. Thank you. She does so many amazing things in our church and serving. I know she's been encouragement to many of you. Uh, if you've got children, you've taken the parenting class. She's been teaching that year in and year out. And so uh, the, the, the ministries of this church would not exist without her. And I would not exist without her peaches and cream pie. So she's, I don't know, you know, we're trying to change up the birthday tradition where she makes me pie on her birthday. Is that, can we do that? All right, okay, just trying, just trying. So, hey, so, so one of the, the, the keynote speaker at this conference was uh, Dr. David Ireland. Anybody ever heard of Dr. David Ireland? I had never heard of him before, and he was phenomenal. Uh, he is a consultant to the NBA, uh, pastors uh, oversight over like 60-some churches throughout the world. Uh, he started college when he was 16. Uh, he's just, he's a phenom. And, uh, and, and he did the two main sessions on Wednesday night and then also again on Thursday night. And, uh, and he opened up his Thursday night session by reading out of Nehemiah, out of the first chapter. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, you know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king Artaxerxes. And a cupbearer is like a, a personal attendant to the king. And so he had some privileges that were afforded to him. And, and as you read in the first chapter, you realize that one of those privileges that he was able to entertain some guests from his homeland. As you know, he's there in exile. And uh, Israel has been conquered. And, uh, and this nation has fallen. And, uh, and, 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 and Nehemiah is one of the captives that, that's there. And, and so, so he's entertaining some guests, and he asks them this question, how are our people? And, and that one question was the beginning of a nation being reborn. And so, so Dr. Ireland, he, he began to talk to us about how this idea is that when you ask the right questions in the right crowd, for the right reasons, that questions can bring about great change in the world and great change in our lives. And so I, my message was already written for it tonight, but I thought, you know, that we're going to be doing it tonight and next Saturday. It's a two-part series, but there are four questions that make up this sermon. And, and I felt like God was speaking to me, Fred, you need to introduce these four questions as four friends that everyone that calls City Life Church their home needs to get in touch with. The, these four questions, they're friends of mine. They're friends of my family. And, and I'm going to introduce you to them over the next couple of weeks. I, I think we might get to one of them tonight. We'll see. Uh, but the, the meat of it's going to be next Saturday. But these four friends need to be in your life. And if they're not in your life, the part of your life that they relate to, I'm telling you that part of your life is going to be upside down and sideways until you let these four friends in. Because you know what friends do? Friends are courageous and they press us when we need to be challenged. And that's what questions do for us when we ask the right questions in the right crowd and for the right reason. So we're going to be looking at these questions. I'm going to tie it into the Good News series in just a minute. You're going to see how we get there. But before we do that, over this last week, I felt like God gave me two prophetic pictures that I want to share with you that, that are going to, I think, prepare our heart for the ways that these four questions are going to challenge us. The first one comes from little Noah, who I actually see is in here, who's turning five, right, next month, turning five next month, and I found a conversation on Facebook between he and his mother, right? I don't know what pastors did before there was Facebook. All right, so, so I asked them permission to share this, and so 
Let me just, I'm going to read it to you. So, so this, is, this is Jessica writing. She says, Noah woke up from my room and comes out and sits on my lap. Mom, did you know that your door just opened and nothing was there? So I explained to him how the air currents work in our house. And she writes, blah, 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 blah. Right? So she's explaining to him, right? She goes into the detail, right? There's a return, and then there's vents. And when the, you know, the air conditioner is blowing or the heat's blowing, the air comes out, and the return draws it back in, and it creates a wind in our home like the wind that's outside. Like she's, she's helping him to understand because right, he's afraid. He doesn't understand that how can a door open and close inside of our house when no one's there? And so like as a, as a good mother, she's teaching him. She's educating him. She's, she's investing in his life just so there can be knowledge but also because that knowledge will cause him to not be afraid right and so you can tell right from this post she's like I'm rocking this mother thing right now with my five-year-old so and he's engaged watching her eye contact maybe a little leaning in a little body language and when she's done she can tell that he wants to say something to her and you know she's thinking He's going to tell me how great I am. He's going to tell me I don't have to be afraid anymore, right? All the things that she's hoping. What's going to come out of his mouth right now? And these are the first words that he spoke. Can you take me to a sewage plant one day so I can see how people's poop gets turned into sauce? <laughs> right? You're like, you're like, what? What? Can you take me to a sewage plant one day so I can see how people's poop gets turned into sauce? And when I read that, you know what I, the first thing that came to my mind? Was that's exactly how we talk to God so often. That's how he sees us. We're talking and praying and reading the Bible and we want him to give us an answer. There's this something that's pressing us and we just, we have to know the answer. And then he begins to speak to us through the Holy Spirit or through God's Word or he sends a person to come and challenge us and gives us the answer. And the next thing, you know, we're just on to the next thing, right? We're just on to the next random thought that seems to be in our head. Because so many times we're like the five-year-old in our conversations with God where we have a spiritual curiosity, but we lack an appetite for change. We just, we just want to know stuff. Like a five-year-old just wants to know stuff. And in our relationship with God, God wants to give us answers so we can know stuff. But even more importantly than that, He wants to see real change in our lives. And so that's the first prophetic picture I'm giving you tonight is that, that through these next couple of weeks, what I hope is going to happen is that God's going to move some of you from a place of spiritual curiosity and into a place where you're actually hungry for change and transformation. And that the answers that God gives to you is actually going to bring about something that's transformational in your life. All right, here's my next one, the prophetic picture I felt like God gave me. Let's watch it first. It's going to be on the screen, I believe. Let's watch it together. This is Selah, Pastor David and Hannah's little girl. What's it say? So when, when Selah reads, that's what she does. She changes her voice, right? She, she has this, she looks at the book. David was telling me that even when they're reading to her, she makes that noise as if to say, I don't need you to read that book to me. I can read it. And how old is she? She's nine months. So clearly she can't read, right? But she sees other people reading, right? You're, maybe your voice changes a little bit when you're reading out loud. You're concentrating. You're focusing. And so what has happened, right, for this little girl is that she has seen grown-ups reading and she's She's just parroting what she sees others do. But she's not really reading, right? She can't make out the words that are on that page. There's no comprehension. There's no understanding. And so I saw that this week. And, 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 uh, and, and this, is, this is what I felt like God spoke to me. This is what so many times people do with what we call the pathways. They're just going through the motions. They're, just, they're showing up at church just to show up at church. But they're not really looking to really encounter a living God. They're showing up to serve. Maybe that's the only time they come to church is when they're scheduled to serve because they're just going through the motions. 
they're picking up their Bible to, to read, but they're not picking up their Bible to read with some expectation of revelation that's going to bring about transformation and change in their life. They're just picking it up because they're, that's what they've seen other Christians do. So they're just, they're just going through the motions, right? Now, what if Selah was in ninth grade? And that's still how she read. Now, the first thing we would say is that David and Hannah suck at parenting, right? What, what if she really knew how to read? What if she really knew how to read, but she just chose to do it that way because it was just easier? And then she puts the book down and says, I read today, right? How many of you are doing that in your life with your Christianity? How many of you are doing that? With all these things that we call pathways, that many people call spiritual disciplines. How many of you, you, you know how to do it the right way, but because we're lazy, because we're indifferent, because I'm including myself in this list, right? Because we're too busy, because we're too tired. And God says, if you would just read the words that are on the pages of the book, how it would change your life. What did Paul write to the, to, in, 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 I believe it's in, uh, it's, it's escaping me right where he says, it's in 1 Corinthians 12. How does he say we're changed and transformed? By the renewing of our, renewing of our minds. Your mind doesn't get renewed by going through the motions. I hope over the next two weeks, something happens in all of us. Something happens in all of us where a, an appetite for change stirs in us. God, I don't want to be the same tomorrow that I am today. And God forbid that I would just go through the motions. But I would engage my spiritual life in such a way with an expectation that I'm going to learn. Let me read you this verse out of Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24 says this. Let us consider, this is out of the King James, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That in the Greeks is, is paroxysmos. Paroxysmos is this word provoke. Now let me read it out of the New Living Translation because the New Living Translation gets it wrong as do most other translations. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Right? Provoke is the right word here because in the Greek, this word paroxysmos, you know what it means? It means to incite. It means to irritate. It means to aggravate. It means to make someone a little bit angry. It's only used one other time in the Bible. That's it. It's just used twice. It's used here in the writer of Hebrews. The second reference is in Acts chapter 15 verse 39. And you know what that conversation is? It's the conversation between Paul and Barnabas where they got so angry at each other that they parted ways. That's the only other time it gets used. So don't tell me that it means motivate. Don't tell me that it means encourage. You can do it, right? That's what so many people translate the Bible. That's what they want it to say. You know why? Because they don't like the idea of God provoking us. They don't like the idea of, they don't like, they like the picture of Jesus petting the lamb. They don't like the picture of Jesus making the whip out of leather, turning over some tables. We don't like that picture of Jesus. We don't, you know why that is? Because we like to read like Selah. Because we like to go in our conversations with God about deep questions to taking us on a tour of a sewage treatment plant. From just one thing to another. Stream of consciousness. Where God is trying to engage us in a relationship that's transformational. And you know one of the ways that transformation takes place in our lives? Is that we allow ourselves to be provoked. That's why it's in the Bible. And that's why that's the word the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to use. And it gets misrepresented to us so many times through these translations. Provoke is the right word. In fact, whatever Bible you're reading, if it doesn't say provoke, you should mark it out with a sharpie and write provoke right over top of it because it changes it, doesn't it? Provoke one another to love and to good works. What is he? To have, to, to do it for the right reasons and to do the right things. And so my hope that tonight and next Saturday that you feel provoked. I, that's what I hope. I hope some of you leave tonight going, Pastor Fred hurt my feelings. Right? In fact, maybe some of you should do your, your best Pastor Fred hurt my feelings selfie and post that on Facebook. In fact, why don't we make it a contest? 
the best Pastor Fred hurt my feelings selfie that you post to Facebook and tag me. I'm just Fred Michaud on Facebook. You tag me. I'm going to pick my favorite, and next week I'll give you a $25 gift card to Starbucks, right? That's so, that's so you can get a drink for yourself and one friend. So, are you ready? All right. You're gonna, are you going to do it? I know CYP is going to do it, but I want to see some selfies on there from people that are older than 25. All right. And if you don't know what that is, then you can ask them and they'll tell you. All right, so you ready to be provoked? Ready to be irritated? Some of you are like, what in the world? Those of you who are visiting go, what have I gotten myself into? Poor family of Joey Moriarty. Oh, that's great. Matthew 26, 1 through 13. Listen to this. Oh, I love this story. This story is so good. I've been praying over this story for years, and I felt like God spoke to me some things just the week before last to give me some understanding in this that I've never had before. I'm going to share it with you tonight. Matthew 26. Father, I just pray as we get into this message tonight, God, that that we're going to allow you to push us around a little bit. For those of us that are comfortable, for those of us who are complacent, for, 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 for those of us who are entitled, that something holy would begin to shift in us. That every single one of us has a divine purpose and a destiny, a reason that you have created us. There's stuff that you want us to do. May it be, God, that, that, that because of tonight, that something in all of us is going to begin to take some steps towards our purpose and out of our selfishness. Amen. Some of you are saying, I'm not sending my pastor to a conference anymore. Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, am I, am I going to start reading? Yeah, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. He said, as you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So this is the last week of Jesus' life, right? It's called chronological context. The, the things that Jesus did in his final days are important, right? Because he doesn't have too much time left. So the things that he te- it's like a sense of urgency that he has. So at the same time, at, the, at that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during Passover, the celebration they agreed, or the people may riot. So their plan was originally to not try to kill him at Passover, but Judas comes in and then advances the timetable. But that's another sermon for another time. So verse 6 says this, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. Now, if you're a note taker, you might want to write down Mark 14 and John 12. Mark 14 and John 12. Because these other two gospel writers give us a picture of the same event. Now, some people say that these, this is another example of the Bible contradicting itself. But the Bible does not contradict itself. If you assimilate all the facts and the details of all three of these stories, you get the complete picture. They're actually in the home of Simon the leper. I believe it's in John, the, the, the woman who's the central figure figure in this story is Mary, it's Lazarus' sister, and the New Living Translation, again, does us a disservice. If you read in John 12, it says they were at Lazarus' Lazarus's home, but in the original Greek, there's no insertion of the place that they're at, and the reason why that doesn't belong there, because you have to assimilate it with Matthew 26 that tells us where they are. Does that make sense? So sometimes the Bible translations adds information because they think they're helping you to understand something, but it actually confuses you. So in the New American Standard, which is one of the most literal translations of the Bible, when you read in John 12, it does not say they were at Lazarus' home because they were not at Lazarus' home. They were in Simon the leper's home. But it's a big crowd. So this one family can't prepare all the food. And so right there, what do they do? They have friends. It's just like when we have big church meetings. We might be at one person's home, right, a big life group. But other people that don't live there are in the kitchen helping to prepare the food. Does that make sense? All right. So while he was eating, a woman came who we know from the other gospel writers is Mary, Lazarus' sister. And this is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. So they love Jesus for lots of reasons. But he gave them their brother back. While he was eating, a woman, who's Mary, came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over, her he- over his head. Now, we also know from John that not only she poured over his head, but she poured it on his feet, and she began to wash his feet with her hair. 
This alabaster jar, alabaster is a translucent white-like stone that was popular even then and now to, to make these ornate carvings. And so she has this, just the box itself would have been incredibly valuable. And so she breaks it open so all of this, this perfume can, can be poured out upon Jesus. Now listen to what it says in verse 8. The disciples were indignant. All of Jesus' followers were mad. They were being provoked. What a waste, he said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? So right, right he's, 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 he's in a place of conflict with his own disciples. Don't you call bad what I call good. This is what he says. This is insensitive, Jesus. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial, and I tell you the truth, wherever the good news, this is the part that's always eluded me, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. How many of you have discussed what this woman did in your life and journey, right? Not a ton. Yeah? Some. Some. But a few. What Jesus' claim here seems to be a little bit of an exaggeration, doesn't it? It says, every, let's, let's read it. What does it say? I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached, wherever, Throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. For some of you, you might be hearing this for the first time. What was Jesus talking about? This is what I felt like God spoke to me. Jesus isn't talking about Mary being remembered for the rest of all of history. He's talking about the controversy that existed in this moment. And this one, we've all been a part of. When we say to churches or any other not-for-profit organization... Why did they spend their money on this when they should have spent it on that? Jesus is saying to us, and he was saying to the world then, and it's been a part of every conversation in every church since every church was started, and budgets have been created, which they had them then, and we have them now. Why aren't you spending the money that you spent over here on mercy ministry over there? Right? There's a tension that exists in churches between how money is spent. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That's never going away. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus takes the side of the argument that usually we're on the opposite side of. Am I right? I mean, most of us, we're on the side of the disciples. We could have given that money to the homeless. We could have done more on that trip to the Dominican Republic where this team came back from. Are you with me? Most of us, am I right? If I'm wrong, tell me. But most of us, our complaint is that more money should be spent on these mercy ministries. And Jesus challenges that way of thinking. And what he says here in this text, he uses, this is where it connects to our series, he himself uses the word gospel. He himself uses the word good news. What he's saying to us, and, and the reason why it's important that it be talked about whenever the good news is preached, Jesus is saying if money is spent to advance the message of Jesus into the world and into your community, never devalue that. If, if money is being spent so people can hear about Jesus' plan for salvation, don't ever devalue that. Because in God's perspective, all of it is important. He doesn't say never spend any money on mercy ministry, but what he does say is don't sacrifice the money that needs to be spent for the gospel to go forth. Because if you care for the poor, but you never tell them that Jesus saves, then you have only made their life here more comfortable but you've made their eternity something that could possibly be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. You've treated the temporary for the eternal. And Jesus says right here to these people, don't ever do that. Make sure that you're spending the money that you need to spend 
for people to know that Jesus saves. And it's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be conversation. You have to be willing to let each other provoke one another to love and good works. Are you with me? It's this idea of of a church being willing to say, we're going to have to wrestle with one another to figure this thing out, and there's always going to be a little tension. In fact, I would say, if there's not always a little bit of tension when figuring out how money is supposed to be spent or even talking about money, then I would say you're probably not talking about it enough. We don't like to be at these parties where all of a sudden there's a, a little bit of push and pull. Church was created so people who are devoted followers of Christ could be in a little bit of a push and pull with each other in a good way. In fact, I would say to you that I would not be in the place that I am in my journey if it, not, if it were not for people who are willing to push me a little bit along the way. In fact, some of you that are in here, that's part of the role that you play in my life. And guess what? That's part of the role that I play in your life. Some of you, you've gotten those calls from me before. Sometimes because of what I saw you post on Facebook. There's questions that you need friends who love you, that are willing to ask you. And sometimes there's questions that you've got to be willing to ask yourself. You've got to be willing to ask yourself. There's friends that have flesh, and there are friends that you invite into your life because there's questions that come from God's word that you continue to say to those friends those questions. Ask me this question. So let me give you the first of my four friends. The first one is this. When it comes to generosity, am I cheerful? This is the first of these four friends that I'm going to introduce you to you that you need to have in your life. You need to have this friend that's walking around with you your whole life. Am I cheerful? Am I cheerful? When it comes to opportunities that I have to give, to be generous with money, am I cheerful? You need that friend in your life. Are you with me? You need that friend in your life that says, cheer up. When you write that check, that friend says, hey, why aren't you smiling? When you make that sacrifice that that, that God asks you to make, when you buy those potato chips that are dipped in chocolate and you give them twice as much money as what they were asking for to send a kid to camp and you're walking away and you should be smiling because it tastes good, but you're grumpy because the Holy Spirit spent some more of your money. This friend says, hey, smile or I'll knock that potato chip right out of your hand. Right? Anybody need a friend like that? We all need a friend like that. Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught, Jesus himself, 16 of the 38, they deal with money. Why is that? Because we need to be provoked when it comes to our sense of entitlement over our material resources. Listen to this. One out of every 12 verses in the New Testament deals with money. Why is that? Because we need to be provoked. When you look at the whole Bible, there's 500 verses on prayer, roughly, less than 500 on faith. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with money and material possessions. Why is that? Because we have a bigger problem with money than we do with prayer. We have a bigger problem with money than we do with faith. Because we're born with what we see in the nursery. And some of us have never outgrown it. And it's the disease of mine. And the perspective of yours. And how what's mine is not yours. And what God says to us is, nothing that you have belongs to you. It's all mine, and I'm going to tell you what to do with it. And when I do, smile. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. When we ask a a certain response from our children, we've raised our children. You don't get credit for it if you do it begrudgingly. Right? Do it with a happy heart. Because it's not just a matter of doing the right thing. It's doing it with the right attitude. Then it counts. And so God says to you, and he says to me, I'm going to put a friend in your life. And that friend is going to be a question. And that question is, are you cheerful when the pastor preaches about money? Are you you posting just as much on Instagram about how excited you were about the message on money as that you were when he preached on mercy? 
We don't need a friend walking around with us saying smile when we hear a great sermon on mercy. Right? But when it comes to someone provoking us with our material possessions, we need a friend that says you better start smiling and stop frowning because God expects us to have a happy heart when it comes to generosity. You might say, where would I find that in the Bible? And I would say, thank you for asking that. Deuteronomy 26, I'm going to read from 5 to 11. Deuteronomy 26, 5 to 11. You must then say, in the presence of the Lord your God, my ancestor Jacob was, wand- was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became large and a mighty nation. And when the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our prayers, cries and saw our hardship and toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a powerful arm with overwhelming terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land that's flowing with milk and honey. And now, O Lord, I have brought you the first portion of the harvest that you have given me from the ground. Then place the produce before the Lord your God and bow to the ground and worship before him. And this is the part that I like. And afterward, you may go and sulk and cry and complain about what God has asked you to give. Is that what it says? No, it does not. And afterward, you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and to your household. I love this text because God says when you step into a place of generosity, especially the kind of generosity we're going to talk about for a few minutes tonight, the generosity that you're supposed to have to the church that you call home, when you give, you should leave and go, let's have a party. Come on. I just got to give what belongs to God, back to him. It's not even mine to begin with. Come on, let's go get some pizza. How many of you are doing that? How many of you are walking in this place of one of my favorite things to do every month is to write that check? One of my favorite things to do, I gave actually at the conference through text, never given through text. I I told Pastor Jamie, I said, I feel so young right now, right? How many of you, when you step into a moment like that, the first, the first inclination of your heart is, I'm so happy that I have less, but the kingdom has more, so the gospel can go forth. Is that the sentiment of your heart? Because God says it's supposed to be, and he's willing to put that question in your life as a friend, to press you and provoke you until your heart changes. How about 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must decide in your heart how each must give. Pastor David didn't even know what I was, I was preaching on this, and then he's doing that wrap-up, right? I'm, I'm saying God is trying to get somebody's attention in here tonight. Listen to what Paul writes. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. See, there's a difference between pressure and provocation. Pressure is somebody's making me do something that I don't want to. Provocation presses you, but then it's your decision as to whether or not you're going to step into that place. And then if you don't, then you've got people in your life that are love you enough to hold you accountable and to continue to provoke you into a place of what? Of love and good works. What does it say? For God loves a person who gives how? Cheerfully. Am I cheerful? Am I happy about the opportunity? The emotion of smile. Think of all the things that make you smile. Right? What if we had done a participation moment, right? As this is what I should have done. I should have set you up a little bit, right? If I really wanted to irritate you. What if we had done a participation moment at the beginning of the service like we often do? And I said, what are the things that make you smile? Right? Tithing makes me smile, Pastor. Somebody would have gone, that's a plant. Right? 
Who, who would, right? But yet, we look at God's word and what does he say? Oh, there should be something that causes our heart to smile when we step into the kinds of generosity that God calls us to walk in. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. I think so oftentimes we read that and we think about in the negative, I'm supposed to be thankful in difficult times, and we are, and that's another sermon for another time. But it, but it says in all circumstances, right? In every situation, in every circumstance, there should be a sense of thankfulness that's always stirring in our heart and includes, and includes generosity. So let's talk about tithing just for a few minutes. We believe at City Life that tithing is a, is a biblical principle that's supposed to be a part of today. It's been a, I made a vow of devotion to Christ when I was 23, and I worked in a corporate-type setting for, for about a decade, and I was just as excited about tithing then as I am today now that I'm in vocational ministry. It's always been something that's caused me cheer. It's, it's a question that my parents taught me from my youth. It was the culture of the church that I kind of grew up in as a devoted follower of Christ. And I know it's the same for many of you. And we brought that attitude here when we came. We love the opportunity that we have to give to God. We love it. Love it. It's in the Old and the New Testament. Now, I will give you this. The New Testament... It's intentionally ambiguous, I believe. It's intentionally ambiguous about where that tithe is supposed to go in the New Testament. A lot of people are going to try to tell you it's there, and I'm going to tell you it's a little bit of a stretch. The principle of tithing is there, but where it goes, I think there's some, there's some open-endedness to that, and I think God did it that way on purpose. But the culture of city life, the culture of our church, if you call this your church home, our culture is that we put the tithe in the church that we call home. That's the culture of our church. It's part of who we are. It's, it's required of leaders, and it's encouraged of people who aren't leaders. And we're unapologetic about that, because we believe that if this is the place where God is ministering to you, then this should be the place where you're bringing your alabaster box to make sure that that keeps happening for you and for others. It's the culture of our church. And people who don't call this their church home, we don't want their tithe. I don't want it. People visit here, right? I, I want that. You, you give that to your church. It's the culture of our church, and I believe it should be the culture of every church. So let me just tell you what that culture resulted in last year. For those of you who weren't in our business meeting, we had an amazing year last year. General tithes and offerings last year was, was $490,000, almost a half a million dollars. We're not a huge church. Come on, you can clap for that. Faith Promise was $35,000, 2020 Vision, $74,000. Those are big numbers. Our, our, the average size of our church last year was probably around 350 between us and the Williamsburg campus. Only about 75% of that number are adults. So you're talking about, what, 260, 270 adults. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Those numbers were generated by only 70% of our church family. 30% of our church, this is people that call us their home. Not visitors, not people that are passing through, right? 30% of the people that call this their church home give nothing, nothing. Or, or so seldomly, it's almost nothing. That's shocking, isn't it? What would those numbers look like if everybody who believed in the principle of tithing was walking in the principle of tithing. You've heard me say this before. I bet if we did a survey, we would find that at least 50% of the people that call this their church home, I bet at least half of our church believes in the principle of tithing. When our elders and trustees look at those numbers, they find that probably only about 20% or so of people are actually walking in the biblical principle of tithing. I'm provoking you tonight, not because we want to see the church budget change. I'm provoking you tonight because we want to see the gospel that is supposed to come out of this church come out to the measure that God has ordained it to happen. 
And the only way it's going to take place is if all of us who have an alabaster jar of material resources that are precious to us, that we cheerfully give the portion of it that God expects us to give. Does it hurt? Sometimes it does. Is it a sacrifice? It always is. But it should make you smile. It should cause happiness to overflow from your heart because you have the opportunity to walk in what God is asking you to walk. So let me tell you what our budget we're setting up for this year. I'm going to keep going a little bit. We, we won't do the closing song. I'll, I'll close in prayer. But grab a few more minutes here because I, I want to finish this. This year's goals for general giving, if you weren't at the business meeting, this year's goals, $544,000 we're believing between all three campuses. We're only about 8000 back from that after our first quarter, which is a huge success for a church that just planted a campus. It's, it's, all of us are celebrating that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Faith Promise, we're going to hopefully give some updates next week and for 2020 Vision, but the goals that we set is that we want to see Faith Promise again be at least $35,000 in giving. That's what funds missions, missionaries, missions trips, uh, helping to advance the vision of the church beyond the walls of the church. Uh, 2020 Vision is money that we're able to continue to press forward our Praxis 9, the, the, the School of uh, Leadership, our internship program, and also to, to help make sure that we're going to continue to plant the campuses that we're supposed to plant by the end of 2020, right? The 2020 Vision, right? By the end of 2020, we want to see the school grow and we want to see more campuses planted. And so we're believing God for 20000 there, $35,000 of faith promise, and $544,000 in giving. So I shared at the, at the, at the business meeting that, that we're, we're going to do a little bit of a change this, this year. And we're talking about tonight at all, all three of our campuses, all three of our campuses. It's interesting out of all the things that we talked about at the business meeting, this is the one that most, the majority of people came up to me after the meeting that were excited about something. This is what they came and they were excited about. So for me, as, as, the, as, as the pastor of the church and then other pastors, our campus pastors, we've never looked at any giving. That's always been a function of the elders and the trustees. And so what I shared at the business meeting is what I realized is that people that, that call this their church home and, and give nothing, that took us about a year to come to this place of decision, is that as a pastor, I should be speaking into people's lives who are walking into that place of nothing. So we submitted it to the elders. We prayed about it. It went through all the leaders. It took us about a year to get there. It took us about a year to get there. But what we began, this is what I began to realize. If I knew that there was something else that was happening in your life, that if you were to make that change, it would bring about spiritual vibrancy to your life, guess what I do? I call you. We go have lunch or have a coffee or I set up a meeting and I pastor you in, that, in every other area of your life. And I felt like God spoke to me and challenged me and said, Fred, why, why would you create a culture of hiding for people that are saying, I'm not giving anything. Why would you create a culture for people where it's easier for them to walk into that place of disobedience? Why would you do that? I said, I don't know. And then I said, you know what? I do know. I do know. Because I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I didn't, I didn't want people to, to think that I cared about them because of the opportunity they might have to give. And then I felt like God said to me, well, that's not what I've called you to be as a pastor. I've called you to be a voice in people's lives where you're willing to provoke them to love and good works. It's not a popularity contest, Fred. It's for you to love people with the truth. So this is what we decided. We're not going to look at any of the giving information. That's going to continue to stay the same. We're not going to see any of that. That's still going to be a function of our elders and our trustees. So the only way that your name's ever going to appear in a piece of paper that I do see is if you give nothing. And we're not going to do that for the first time until the end of May. So it gives you time to get off of that report. And when you get that call, it's a call because I love you and I care about you. Because you know what we also begin to realize as we begin to talk with each other as a leadership team? That there are people in financial crisis 
and that's why they're not giving. And, and they need help not to give, not, not, not that they should start giving. They need help to get out of the financial crisis that they're in, that they've been hiding in, because they're ashamed to tell people that they need help. And we've been missing the opportunity to help those people. It's for people that maybe have never had any exposure to any of the teaching in the Bible that talks about giving and, and why we do it. Or maybe they've been taught things that are broken and ugly, and it's an opportunity for us to begin to talk with them and recommend some books that they should read. Not to pressure people to give, because that's not what we want to do. Because, right, the Bible says don't do that. Don't pressure, but provoke. For us to be able to say, hey, let's read this book together or to put you in touch with another family in the church if you're in a place of crisis that can begin to help you. As a church leadership team, we began to realize that, that we're ignoring a population of our church that needs to be pastored in an area of their life that is sensitive. But welcome to being in community with one another under the banner of Jesus Christ. I want people in my life to challenge me, and I hope you do too. I want to have the kind of character that doesn't just rely on friends that have flesh, but I rely on friends that come out of God's word, and I'm willing to engage those friends through questions that I ask myself. And that when I'm asking myself those questions that I am going to find friends that I have with flesh and begin to say to them, I'm asking myself this question and when you ask that question of me, what do you see? What would happen if we began to do that? The whole world would come to Christ in about seven days and Jesus would come back and we'd go on to the new heaven and the new earth. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just in a place of stream of consciousness relationship with God where you go from one rambling question to the next because you're just curious but you're not really hungry for change? One day you and I are going to stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. Do you realize that? You, you think having an annual performance appraisal at your job is intense. You and I are going to stand before the creator of the universe. And he's going to say to you, and he's going to say to me, hey, you're here by my grace. That's great. You're in heaven because you made a vow of devotion to Christ. Now let's have a conversation. And I know for me that conversation is probably going to take about a thousand years. But I want that conversation to not be any longer than it has to be. Because I did some of the heavy lifting that's here, in the here and now. That I was willing to ask myself the hard questions. That I was willing to be a part of a church that loved me enough to provoke me and to challenge me to love and to good works. So I'm going to close with this verse. It's the verse that I was praying through this morning when... I felt like God spoke to me about Joey. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. And there was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. And from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan sealed the pack by taking off his robe and giving it to, to David together with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, we're not going to go there for the sake of time tonight, but if you go to 1 Samuel 13, you know what you find? You find something that's crazy. There were only two swords in all of Israel. An entire nation, two. Saul had one and David had one. Because the Philistines had conquered them and would not allow any blacksmiths to operate as Israelites because they were afraid that they would make weapons. Two swords in the entire nation. In fact, when David comes onto the scene to fight Goliath, one of the reasons why he doesn't have a sword is because there were none. There was no Bass Pro Shop. I'll take that one. In fact, I'll take all three of those. Rocks, some leather, that's all he had. 
One of the reasons why that army didn't want to go down and fight, because guess what? They didn't, they didn't have any weapons. They had nothing. They didn't have weapons. That's it. Now, by the time you get to 1 Samuel 18, it's believed that they probably had some weapons by then because David had killed Goliath and they had conquered the Philistines. So they had probably begun to arm themselves to some degree. But it doesn't change the power of the text. You know why? Because that sword was special. Because when Israel only had two, this was one of them. And some of Jonathan's greatest conquests that you read about in the Bible, he did with this sword. And yet he lays it at David's feet because he knows that David is supposed to be the next king. I'm reading this to you and I'm reading it to myself because too many of us, myself included, have a sense of entitlement when it comes to the things that belong to us. And for some of those things, God understands why there's entitlement because we cherish them. Sometimes God steps into our life just like he stepped into Jonathan's life in this moment and said, Jonathan, those things aren't yours, they're mine. And I'm asking you to give them, to give them for my divine purposes. Stand with me. Father, all of us are holding some things in our hands. Whether we look at it as an alabaster jar that's filled with a priceless perfume or whether we see it as a tunic and a robe and a belt and a bow and a sword. They're, they're all the same thing. They're material possessions. And Father, I pray that for the rest of our lives, that for the rest of our lives, that we would come to you, our King, Jesus, like Jonathan came to David and said, what is it that I have that you need me to give to you so that you can establish your throne for all eternity? What do I have that's really yours that you would ask me to give back to you so that the gospel and the good news could go forward? Father, may it be that our hearts would be hearts that love to be provoked, that love to be pressed, that love to be challenged, that we would immerse ourselves in a community and a church where there is, there is a sense of courageousness to stir one another on. Shape us, change us, mold us, rescue us from ourselves. out into this city, into the 757, this region, that we would see the thousands of people that need to know that Jesus saves. And that whatever part you're asking us to play to make sure that there's enough money so that that message can go forward, that all of us would do our part. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together. Amen. We'll see you next week.